Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is a comics podcast. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. And this is the comics podcast for comics fans who have a suspicion that comics might not just be things that are about superheroes and purchased in approximately 30-page floppy items from a local comic book store. We, we have a suspicion that comics might include other things as well, like political cartoons or newspaper strips. And I have just the right guest today to help me determine if this suspicion is in fact accurate. Joining me today is T. Fugner. T. is editorial director for, comic, for comics at King Features Syndicate. When she's not reading comics for work, she's reading comics for fun, drawing comics, dressing up as comic book characters, or watching comic adaptations on television. T is also co-coordinator for Cosplay at FlameCon, the world's largest LGBTQ comic con, which is accepting cosplay applications now at flamecon.org. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Alana. It's great to be here. So, you know, longtime listeners may know remember you uh, because I've had you on a couple times to nerd out about other topics with me. And I've always had in my mind that I need to get you on to actually talk about you and your work at some point. And... Um, the, uh, the whole uh, Emerald City Comic Con getting canceled because of health risks um, felt like, oh, my God, this is the perfect time to go bother T about their work. Aww. So now that's what I'm doing. Well, thank you so much, Alana. It's really it's really fun to be able to talk about comics outside of those floppies that everybody loves. And, you know, it's funny because I, I grew up um, really like reading newspaper strips hardcore. Um, my dad is big newspaper strip reader, although very much believes that like he loves, he loves the strips or he hates them. And, you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of that way. Like this is, I love this one. This one's trash. Like it's either one or the other. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but didn't grow up in a comic book reading household. And I, I didn't even quite understand when I, when I finally picked up comics, I didn't even really realize how much the fact that I'd, I'd always read comics. Like it just didn't even occur to me that that was the thing, you know? Yeah. I think that, it's so important to talk about comics as a format rather than a genre. Um, they're, you know, they're literally any kind of sequential artwork with words is a comic and it can be, it, it doesn't even always have to be sequential. A single cartoon uh, can be a comic. You can have a giant graphic novel that's like 500 to a thousand pages long and it's a comic. Um, and you know, there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of genres, there's all kinds of artistic mediums being used. And it's really great to see more of that being accepted and more of that being celebrated. Uh, but yeah, but comic strips are something that have been around for a super long time. Um, and I think, you know, as people, certainly of our generation and younger read fewer newspapers. They're not having access to comic strips in the same way, but we're working on trying to change that and find other places for people to read comics because I don't think it's the format that people don't mm -hmm. love. It's the fact that people aren't getting, uh, you know, they're not getting actual tangible newspapers delivered to their homes anymore. And the thing is people read so many comics in the form of memes. Oh you yeah. Know? Like those, right? Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting for us is seeing um, which of our comic strips and comic panels take off as memes because it's not always the youngest, freshest comics. Um, we, we syndicate the Lockhorns, which is a comic about um, a, a really grouchy middle-aged couple. Um, 
And it's been going on for a very long time. It was originated by a very famous political cartoonist, Bill Host. Uh, It's now written by his wife, Bunny Host, and uh, her longtime partner, John Reiner. And it gets it gets shared around like crazy. And it's not really the comic that we ever expected to be that kind of like social media viral um, meme type comic. But for some reason, people love sharing it. So talk to me, what is King Features Syndicate? So King Features Syndicate, um, we are lar- we are part of King Features, a larger organization, which is then part of Hearst. Um, ah. But we are the oldest content syndicate. Um, I believe we're the oldest content syndicate in the country. We're a, a little over 100 years old. Um, wow. And basically what happened was... Back during the you know height of the height of yellow journalism, which is named for a King Features comic, the Yellow Kid. Um, back during the height of yellow journalism, folks were trying to find you know folks were trying to find ways to get people to buy their papers and not the competing papers in their markets. And one of the best ways to do that was to get the most popular content. So if you could say. I have that comic you love to read. I have that horoscope you love to read. I have that column you love to read. You've heard about this from your cool friends in another city and you want to read it. It's going to be in my newspaper. And so the way you did that was syndication. You would put together all of the content that your newspaper or your newspaper group, in the case of of somebody like Hearst, who owned several newspapers, you'd take all that content and you would call up newspapers in other places and say, hey, um, you know, we've got this awesome column. It's been really popular in our city. We know that it could help your newspaper. And then that newspaper is actually going to subscribe to that piece of content. Uh, The same way that we subscribe to get content delivered to us, um, Mm -hmm. a, a newspaper or a magazine or Really any sort of really any sort of media publisher can subscribe to syndicated content. Uh, a lot of websites do now and publish that content out to their readers. Um, so it's a way of getting more content for your readers when you m- maybe either can't afford to bring on full-time staff members or if you know that there's a piece of content that's really popular that's going to appeal to your audience. So that's what we do is we help create that content and then we sell that content to subscribers who want to bring that content to their audiences. Gotcha. And with the comics focus, I heard the name King Feature Syndicate because I saw it marked in like the little margins at the bottom of, you know, a lot, basically like all the classic comic strips from my local papers. Yeah. So yeah, we um, we represent a ton of really classic comics. William Randolph Hearst himself was a huge comics fan, and that meant mm. that he would like he would pay his favorite cartoonist to just come do comics for him. Um, he had you know he had Alex Raymond who did Flash Gordon and Secret Agent X Nine. Um, he had Hal Foster doing Prince Valiant. Um, he had George Harriman doing Crazy Cat, which is a really fascinating story because Crazy Cat made almost no money. And George Harriman, uh, you know, was just this absolutely brilliant cartoonist who was doing things that were like way ahead of his time. 
And William Randolph Hearst would just pay him to do it because he loved Crazy Cat so much. Um, so, you know, there were just all of these amazing, talented, brilliant cartoonists working at the time. And Hearst would really try to gather them all in just because he loved comics so much that he wanted to be able to um, create platforms for these folks. He also loved, you know, being able to sell their stuff and turning it into a successful <laughs> business. Don't get me wrong, but he was yeah. just a huge advocate for comics. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I mean, for, for anybody like, the main cultural touchstone for who is Hearst generally is like Citizen Kane. Right. Unless you're a Hearst nerd who's read otherwise. So that or definitely. His, yeah. He's got his little, uh, you know, um, his little cameo in Newsies also, although that's mostly about oh, Pulitzer, yeah. but definitely along the same line, you know? Yeah. So I think people definitely are familiar with that side of him. Um, but he was really, uh, he was really invested in comics. In fact, up until his death, he insisted on personally approving every comic that King Features did. He wasn't nearly that involved in many of the other parts of the business, but he wanted to meet the cartoonists. He wanted to see what they were working on. Um, the last comic that he actually approved was Beetle Bailey. Um, mm. Was uh, he the Mort Walker was the last cartoonist he hired to uh, to syndicate with King Features? Wow, yeah. Well, one of the things that I when when, when in preparation for our talking, um, I I went and uh, there's a the website that you guys run is a uh, Cartoon Kingdom. Is that is that run by Comics Kingdom? King- Comics Kingdom. Is Comics that run Kingdom. by King Features? Yes, it's run by King Features. Um, we have a we have an awesome digital team who. Uh, you know, makes sure that the site is up and running and that people can see their comics every day. So you can read comics for free there. You can also subscribe for about $20 a year. And um, then you can actually get your comics delivered to your email inbox. And you, that's really cool. And and with with um, you getting me on board to look at that, I was poking around the vintage section because yes. that was the area that I felt like you know, if something was a comic in the 90s, like, believe me, I know it. But I wanted to sort of see what was in the vintage piece. Um, and I discovered uh, a Secret Agent X9 that you just mentioned earlier. I didn't realize that writer Dashiell Hammett worked on it. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Dashiell Hammett was the first writer on X9. He didn't write it for very long. Um, but it was like this powerhouse. You know, if you think about some of the like collaborations we see on comic books today it was very similar to that you had alex raymond who was this superstar artist and dashiell hammett who is this superstar writer coming together to collaborate on this like super cool precursor to james bond what was so interesting to me also is like i when we think of comics generally from the newspapers that we read you know if if you're someone roughly my age which would be a zennial bordering on Gen X type person. Like most of the strips in the papers were, were, were comedy ones. There was a few soap ones. And like the only action strip in the paper for me growing up was the Spider-Man one and Prince oh, yeah. Valiant. That was it. Yeah. Um, but the genre was, the genre is so huge that you got, you have every genre really. Yeah, we really do. Um, and that's something that's changed over time. I think, um, 
you know, a long time ago, a hundred years ago, there were comics in all kinds of genres. I think uh, you sort of started to get this, a lot of action adventure comics happening in the thirties, which is really Mm -hmm. kind of what gave rise to, um, to superhero comics and floppies. You, you had uh, Mandrake, the magician, the phantom both came out just a couple years before Batman. Um, those were two King Features comics. And uh, the Phantom is really the first character who has a superhero costume the way we think of them today. You know, he's the first person, yeah. like with the underwear on the outside and the tight mm-hmm. suit. Um, and Man- a little skull. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Striped underwear. It's cute. I'm uh-huh. into it. Um, Mandrake was really the first um, crime fighter who had superpowers. Um, he also wears a cape. I mean, he's wearing like the whole stage magician costume, so it's a little different. But there's so much coming out of there that then got brought into floppies um, mm-hmm. when superheroes sort of took off. And then again, you know, for for many years, the strips followed kind of the same trends that you saw in in floppy comics as well. You got, you know, a whole slew of sci-fi stuff in the 60s. Um, you know, there were definitely, there were romance comics that a lot of those started in the forties and fifties. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of those things that, you know, did sort of start to drop off. I think a lot of the reason, and this is just sort of my own conjecture that that did start to drop off had to do with, um, had to do with comics in newspapers getting shrunk. So they would get smaller and smaller. And the smaller they get, the harder it is to tell a really good serial story in them, mm-hmm. um, which makes it, you know, I think more difficult uh, for first for creators, but also for fans to enjoy them. If you're only getting like one exchange of dialogue a day, they're not going to be the most enjoyable thing that you're reading that day. So things that are quick and funny and you are getting a four panel punchline those things are going to stay really engaging um, no matter what, you know, no matter what size they're being printed in, no matter how many um, panels, no, much how, no matter how much space they have. Um, but really good serial strips, um, I think, you know, they lose something when you're not getting as much per day. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I really do. I, I, remember trying to read Prince Valiant as a kid and I was like, this art is gorgeous and I have no idea what the fuck is going on. (laughs) And one of the things I was thinking about with the website now is that we actually can now read these action strips, like, you know, more of them all at once and make them larger on our screen. And like, this might be the way to finally get into some of those older action comics that I just I thought they looked gorgeous, but I just couldn't follow the stories the way they were done in the paper when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that I felt the same way. I definitely tried to read. I used to be like, look at Apartment 3G, which King syndicates and Brenda Starr, which we do not. And Mm -hmm. I'd be like, these are the grown up comics. These must be the really (laughs) mature comics for like older people and I would really try to read them and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And now, oh my gosh, like I went back and read a whole bunch of apartment 3g from the 1970s when I first started working at King features. And it's amazing. I mean, forget the fact that at the time it was also like incredibly stylish. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, it just, it has these really interesting plots and like romance and drama and like the kind of stuff that you expect from soap operas with people like maybe being dead or dying. And then it turns <laughs> out they didn't. And, you know, the kinds of stories that you expect from that kind of um you expect from that kind of genre, um, but that I don't think get communicated as well when you're reading little tiny bits. What of the sort of classic action adventure series do you think would be the most accessible to people who mostly read superhero comics these days? Oh, so I think, you know, with the caveat that when you go and read these old comics, you're talking about stuff that's being written in the 1930s and 40s. And oh, there's a lot of sexism. There's a lot of racism. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of white saviorism in particular um, mm. in these sort of old adventure com- comics. But I think I, I think Flash Gordon is really interesting. It has yellow peril on like every single page. So I would go into it with that knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's about, it's about a guy who gets kidnapped into space and then has to like figure out what to do. And there's a whole, you know, he gets pulled into this like super dramatic space rebellion where there's the people who are rebelling against the emperor, um, And then, you know, and all of the different factions involved in that. So Flash Gordon is really interesting. And I think, um, you know, people are going to see all of the tropes that they expect. Mandrake the Magician, I, every time I describe Mandrake to the Magician, Mandrake the Magician to someone, they're like, isn't that Doctor Strange? Um, (laughs) There's so much, I think there was so much borrowing in these older stories from each other. Um, people weren't as precious about IP then. Um, and But Mandrake the Magician is um, about this magician who ha- he actually has magic powers. My favorite part about Mandrake is that he very frequently uses his persona of a, as a stage magician to fool people out of really realizing that he has magic powers um, because he can do all of these things and people think they're just tricks when in fact they're actually magic. Um, he, um, he went to a secret magical college in Tibet. Um, and, Oh wow. Oh yeah. Um, and basically there's all of this weird stuff with the secret magic college he went to the um main villain in mandrake is his older half brother which you don't know that at first spoiler alert but his older half brother um the cobra who actually brainwashes people and turns them into these he calls them the blank face men and there are these like hypnotized people who have no faces they're super creepy um but there's so much stuff in mandrake that really feels so much like dr strange um i think the the phantom definitely um you know you can see elements of a lot of modern superheroes in the phantom you can see elements of batman you can see elements of black panther you can see elements of daredevil um he is basically this guy who is from this long legacy of people who've taken on the same persona um, so that it seems like this is this, uh, it it seems like an immortal ghost, 
Uh, but it's really just the next person. And then when one phantom dies, the next person in the family has been trained to become the next phantom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the phantom basically has this um, oath that he takes to fight injustice, fight piracy, protect the downtrodden. And he's the, you know, he's like Mr. Vigilante justice and he's out there, um, trying to do the do his best for people who are marginalized, which is really awesome. Um, you know, so those would be the ones that I think are, would be most interesting to people who are into modern day superheroes to go back and look at. That's that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I know even Jack Kirby did strips and like it, people sort of moved between the two. Mm-hmm. And those were better. He was better paid for that than for his work at Marvel. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people moved between the two as well. So well, there's probably some... Yeah, we still have people moving between the two. Um, June Brigman actually draws for us. Uh, she's drawing Mary oh. Worth right now. Um, That's right. And it's just absolutely brilliant. Her work on Mary Worth is phenomenal. Um, she just uh, has, she's got such great enthusiasm for that comic and for everything that goes on. And also uh, for the things that readers attach themselves to. I, I know Mary Worth is one of those comics that I think there's a lot of um, like very loving teasing about it. There's people who love reading it for the sort of campier aspects of the strip. And June just, just like June absolutely delights in all of that and has been really just such a great addition. Karen Moy has been writing it for a very long time and does a wonderful job writing the characters, but it's been so, it's been so wonderful to work with June on Mary Worth and to see the way that she's developed those characters further through the art. And, and folks would know June's work from superhero stuff from, yeah, um, from uh, X-Men. Well, and she's, um, the or one of the original creators of the Power Pack. She did a wonderful yeah. um, Supergirl miniseries in the '90s. She's done some really fantastic stuff. That is cool. Yeah. Um, well, I want to hear a little bit about your career because uh, you have an interesting <laughs> origin story, as it were, for for getting for getting into this part of the comics world. Okay, where do we start? So, um, so I. I've always been into comics. Um, I really gravitated toward comics when I was a kid because I was dyslexic and they were way easier to read than prose books. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, when I was in college, I did an internship at DC and um, I really didn't like it. It just, you know, I, I don't think it was the fault of anybody who was there. Um, but it just wasn't, it wasn't what I expected at all. Um, and I sort of left and I was like, well, maybe that's not what I want to do. Maybe I don't want to work in comics. Um, so I left and when I graduated from college, I worked in porn and, um, I was a, I was a, uh, uh, an art director for Playgirl magazine. Um, so I looked at penises through magnifying glasses all day long and, (laughs) um, and then I worked for a mobile software company. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I did that for, for a really long time for, you know, in, in, I think in today's workforce date years, um, I was there for about six years and, um, but the mobile software company wanted to work with comics. And through that, 
uh, we got involved with Comic Space, which was um, a collaboration between Joey Manley, um, who was really, he was involved in Modern Tales and Webcomics Nation and a lot of the really early platforms for webcomics. And Josh Roberts, who had developed Comic Space, is really a place for artists to sell their artwork and portfolios and to share their work. Um, and so I got involved with that. I worked for the, with them for a while. And then one day I got a phone call um, from someone I didn't know. And I usually didn't pick up the phone um, for numbers I didn't recognize. I don't remember why I did. I think I was expecting a different call. But it was, uh, it was the person who was my boss for a very long time at King Features who he called. And he said, you know, I don't know if you know who I am. I'm the comics editor at King Features. Um, I've been looking to hire someone and I've been asking around and everyone I've talked to has recommended you. So, Mm. um, which was really flattering. So I uh, (laughs) went in for an interview at King Features and started working there. I started as an associate editor. I did submissions for a really, really long time uh, in addition to some other stuff. Uh, Then I was our digital, I I was our digital project manager for a number of years, which basically meant that I built websites for cartoonists. Um, And then uh, about uh, about a year ago, I got promoted to editorial director of comics. So now now I sort of manage a group of editors who are all amazing um, and, you know, and spend a lot of time talking to cartoonists about where they want to take their work and, uh, you know, what we can do to support them. Wow. What, yeah. what kind of skills do folks need to, to do that sort of work in the editorial space? You have, you have a graphic design background, right? Yeah. Um, like I said, I was an art director. Um, I, I went to, I have a film degree um, mm-hmm. where that I studied, I studied film production in college. I would say that really the most important things for a job like this are really having really strong reading and writing skills. And that includes comics literacy. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. that that's something that people don't always think about um, the importance of literacy when it comes to comics and the importance of understanding the visual vocabulary of comics, Uh, that there are certain things that people who read comics very frequently um, start to understand. They're sort of, you know, they're just part of, they're part of their lexicon. Um, so getting used to those sorts of things is really important. But I think a lot of it is just really strong communication skills, being a good reader, being a good writer, having good attention to detail and being a good communicator. That's great. When you were submissions editor, that meant that people were basically pitching you guys, pitching you, pitching the King features, but through, through you on like picking up new strips. Yeah. So we we still have um, an enormous slush pile. People send us submissions. We have an open submissions policy. You can find all of the submissions um, guidelines on the kingfeatures.com website. Um, and basically at that point, I we didn't actually have we didn't actually have digital submissions then. So it was all paper submissions. So I had to <laughs> open the envelope, read the submission, and then think about it from a couple different angles. Was the writing good? Was the art good? Um, but also, was it a new idea? Was it an idea that we felt like um, our clients, which we call them newspaper strips, but more and more, there are also digital con- 
clients. There were newsletter clients. There's a whole bunch of other folks who are buying this content. Um, would our clients be interested in this content? You know, would readers be interested in this content? And then you also always have to worry about things like, well, is this going to compete with anything else that we have? So, hmm. you know, is this too much exactly like Mutz or is this too much exactly like Beetle Bailey? Because um, you don't want, you can have, you can have several comics that are all about pets, but they got to all be a little bit different. Um, or mm -hmm. you know that if, if you bring it to a client, they might say, oh, I like this. I'm going to get rid of that other pet comic that you have. So you want them to be right. a little bit different. Um, but um, so that was my job was really looking through them, judging them on quality, judging them on whether I thought there was a place for them with us. Um and then I would take the ones that I thought fit that and I would bring them to my boss and he would look through them and he would decide whether he felt like it was worth following up with those folks. Um, so believe it or not, in the entire time that I, I was doing this, which was about eight years, we only had one comic that came through that submission slush pile that we ended up syndicating. Uh, that was um, Take It From The Tinkersons by Bill Betwee. Um, mm -hmm. but it's really, it's still a really neat process. And one of the things that I'm working on is, um, trying to find a way to bring on more comics that are going to be of more interest to audiences outside of that traditional newspaper audience. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's opening it up a little bit and we do have digital submissions now and our current submissions editor is fantastic. So um, yeah, but it's definitely oh, cool. one of the ways that I learned a ton. So like, what are the, what are the, what are the other, other, other than that, when you mentioned, what are some of the up and coming strips that you've seen? Some of the up and coming strips that I've seen. Um, I can't talk about ones that we haven't started yet. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, we do have a couple of the, we do have a couple that I'm hoping to launch this year. Um, I, we have a couple that have launched recently we have one called daddy days uh which is really great it's very funny it is by john kovaleski it's about a um single dad who is raising a baby and um and he's co-parenting with his ex-wife so she's one of the things i really like about it is that it is about a divorced couple that actually still really works um together Yay. as partners mm -hmm. and um and that's one of the things that i love about it is this really good dynamic between people who want to be really good parents to their kid um but have realized that they do not want to live together um and so that's just, that's just a great thing to see, but it's also really nice yeah. to, you know, to see a comic about parenthood that really focuses on a dad, um, mm -hmm. and a dad doing the things that we, I think kind of traditionally ascribe to motherhood roles. Um, so that one I really like. And then, uh, Macanudo, uh, which is by Linears, uh, it's an Argentinian comic, uh, that we brought to the United States. It's the first comic that we released, um, that we've started releasing in both English and Spanish. 
on the same day. Usually there's a little bit of delay between something that's coming to us in a non-English language that we have to translate or that we're sending to be translated from English. But this one is, um, is bilingual every day. Uh, it's just so beautiful. Uh, it's all hand-drawn with watercolors. Uh, oh, Linear's, is, Linear's is phenomenally talented. And it's just very whimsical. Uh, it's not a. It's not really a belly laugh comic. It's more of a like, oh yeah, that is an actually like weird thing that people do. Uh, it you know it's got it's got a lot of like really great insights on childhood um, and on mm-hmm. imagination. And I just like every single every single one of those comics that I look at. There, there's no. Um, there's a little bit of a recurring cast, but it's fairly large, and there's no real, you know, ongoing storyline in that comic. So it's a little bit different every day. It's very. I think that makes it very easy to get into. You don't need to figure out what's going on. Um, but every single one of them is just an absolutely beautiful work of art. That's cool. Thank you for those suggestions. Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the things that I, I associate you with <laughs> is your vast knowledge and allegiance to all things Popeye. Yes. Um, and Popeye, uh, is a King feature syndicate comic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd love to hear sort of about that, that, that series, like how it came to be and then what your connection to it and, 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 and things like, like that. Yeah. Um, so Popeye was actually originally a very minor side character in a comic strip called Thimble Theater. Um, Thimble Theater started in 1919. Um, and it was about, it was supposed to be a kind of satirical, satirical look at actual entertainment of the time. So each Thimble Theater strip was supposed to kind of lampoon a different popular movie or play or something. Um, hmm. But E.C. Seagar, the creator of Thimble Theater, very quickly got bored with that. And it turned into an adventure strip, but a really humorous adventure strip. Um, it was about the oil family. So there was there were parents, Nana Oil and Coal Oil, and their children, Castor Oil and Olive Oil. And Castor was very much like this get-rich-quick schemer. And he would go out on these adventures. And one of those adventures, he hired Popeye. Uh, <laughs> and Popeye was supposed to man the ship that the caster was taking to Dice Island to um, the casino, where he was going to use a magical bird called the Wiffle Hen to cheat them out of all their money. So Makes sense. Right. Um, <laughs> so... It's um it's actually one of those things that's awesome because we we don't represent them for comics but we represent Cuphead for licensing and of course. there's so much um so much of these old comics inspired uh inspired the premise of Cuphead and that that casino heist is very much part of that um so Popeye was only supposed to be in this one story story ended People were like, where's Popeye? We loved Popeye. And so E.C. Seagar wrote Popeye back into the strip. And eventually, over the course of the next couple of years, Popeye actually became the star of Thimble Theater. And eventually, um, 
after Seagar's death, the comic strip's name got changed from Thimble Theater to Popeye because really he was the character that everybody cared about the most. Um, so I love Popeye. Um, I think, you know, I think that when you go back and read Seagar's work on Thimble Theater, it is so much, um, so much more complicated than what we think of as Popeye today. I think most people who grew up with the Popeye cartoons are like, oh yeah, so every single cartoon is the same. You know, Olive can't decide between Bluto and Popeye and they get into a fight over Olive and Bluto does something bullyish and Popeye is, you know, in trouble. And so then he has to eat his spinach and he gets superpowers and he punches Bluto the end. Um, but believe it or not, Bluto wasn't really even in Thimble Theater. He was basically in one scene. Um, it just happened to be a scene that happened in the comics around the time that the Fleischers were looking for a villain for the Popeye cartoons. Um, oh. So Bluto suddenly turned into a major, major feature of the cartoons. He's not a major feature of the comics at all. Um, and really, Thimble Theater is just Popeye and Olive going on all kinds of weird adventures. Some of them um, involve, there is a part where Popeye becomes king of a country called Spinachovia. Um, hmm. And there's, def- there's one where they get a whole bunch of money. So they decide to open a, a one-way bank that only gives people money and doesn't expect them to pay them back. Uh, and there, there's just like all of these weird stories that aren't really the sorts of things that people think of today when they think of Popeye. Um, and so that's really where my interest in Popeye comes from. I think that it's an extremely, um, the Thimble Theater strip and Seagar's work is extremely kind. It's extremely compassionate. Um, it cares a lot about the poor in particular. Um, and it's just, it's something that I think is really important. Um, he was talking about, he was talking about how important it is to take care of people who have less than you do. Um, he talks a lot about how important it is to respect women. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of the humor in Thimble Theater uh, specifically focuses on, um, on class anxiety and mm. what it means for working class people to want to try to pass as upper class um, and what that, why that's important sometimes to be able to do. Um hmm. And oh, that's interesting. So it's not the usual, like, don't do that. That's bad. It's more like, no, we understand why you might try to do this. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, and so it's really, it's a really interesting strip. And I think it's a really interesting look at American culture during the time that Seagar was writing, which was basically, um, most of the thirties. So in preparation for our conversation, yeah. um, I was started to read some of the Popeye strips from the 30s. And I just sort of, I stumbled on one particular page that just drew, uh, that drew to me because the figure of, one of the figures in it was so um, 
almost mannerstically drawn that I was like, what the heck is this? There's this long stretched out drooping body and the face almost looked like it was like some Dadaist explosion. And I, I clicked in it to read it. And it's part of a series uh, where Popeye is trying to get paid by the king of of uh, Nazilian. Yeah. Nazilia? So Nazilia is, it's called Nazilia. Um, it got changed to Spinachovia because mm-hmm. of the obvious connection that they did not want to make. Um, and it was 1932, I think. Yeah, was. yeah, 1932. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of controversy uh, and different opinions about whether Nazilia was named Nazilia on purpose. Uh, Hmm. And or whether it was just a funny name that then Seagar had to change later because it sounded too much like Nazis. Um, so that's one of those things that I don't know certainty. I don't have any certainty on right. so I, enough to comment on it. Um, and there's a lot of historians that have, you know, very strong opinions one way or another. Um, but yeah, there's this whole um, there's quite a lot um in Popeye where Popeye meets the people of Nasilia and eventually becomes king there um, and then Mm -hmm. stops being king. Um, But there's all, and then they're pretty much always at war with someone. So I think in the early strips they're at war with, are they at war with Tonsilania in the part that you're reading? No, something with well, maybe the king of the letter G or something like okay. that. Okay, because then they their major enemy later is Brutia. Okay, um, but yeah, they're they're constantly at war with someone, and they're always trying to undermine each other. And people mm-hmm. overthrow the king, and then the king overthrows them. Um, but but they're just kind of a mess. Well, I, well, you know, the thing that I thought was really interesting was. Um, I'm reading this comic and it, it's doing a great job of satirizing war. Yeah. Like the king is this complete fucking incompetent who's laughable and he's just treating people unfairly, but mostly like trying to do, trying to not pay people for their work. And Popeye yeah. is just trying to get paid for his damn work. It's just excellent satire. And what was so striking to me was like in like, any other war situation, I would have been like, yeah, fuck the king. They're just trying to make you go to war because that's part of how they want to make money. And there was some interesting stuff that sort of sounded like there was like actual economic policy yeah. being discussed in this comic piece of it. There was like humor around like inflation and oh, um, are they talking and, and about the fact the that money isn't backed by gold? The Pazosis, yeah, Pazosis. that's the part I'm yes. all. Yeah, no, because they're they have this money called Pizzozzi's and they offer Popeye some like insane number of Pizzozzi and he's like great yeah. I'm gonna be rich and then he finds out that like a Pizzozzi like you, like I don't remember the exact number I'm not looking at them right now but it's something like five yeah. million Pizzozzi's equals a dollar um yeah <laughs> so he basically gets screwed and it was the whole thing it was just like re- it was way more political with a capital P than I was expecting. But what struck me was like, if this was any other war other than World War II, where I'm, I'm like, please us, please get involved so that my family isn't literally all murdered by Nazis. Mm -hmm. I would be like, yeah, man, right on. You tell them that shit's bullshit. But in that one context, I'm like, oh, 
Oh, that's 32. Hmm. It was yeah. so funny though. Cause like, I just didn't, I was like, Oh, I wonder what year like, I, I kind of put in my well, head. I should have realized they had to be World War II, not World War One or anything, but I was just like, Oh, yeah. Fuck. Well, and in 1932, a really interesting thing happens in that whole Nazelia um, plot, which is um, the, I, I think his name is Bunzo. The, um, the general of Nazelia, um, uh-huh. Decide, and I might be gay. There's so many characters with weird names, I sometimes get them mixed up. But the <laughs> general of Nazilia stages a military coup right after Hitler did the same thing in Germany. Shit. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, and I mean, obviously, I think it's like, you know, it's really important to, you know, to recognize Seagar was Jewish. Um, he wasn't necessarily tasked with writing a political comic. Uh, there were other people who were doing amazing political cartoons at the time, but there's a lot of politics in Popeye. Uh, there is a lot of, there's a lot of really, um, I think really thoughtful, um, commentary on socialism in Popeye. Um, and there's, or Thimble Theater. Um, and, Mm -hmm. There's some other, like, there's actually times when Popeye's the bad guy, uh, when we're talking about things like getting paid. He, uh, there's this amazing story arc where he inherits a newspaper and he, the newspaper's not doing well. Uh, so he's like, oh, well, you know how, why you, how you get people to read more newspapers is you hire a cartoonist. And (laughs) he hires, he hires this cartoonist, um, and the cartoonist is well, like, well, how much am I going to make a week? And Popeye's like, oh, 15. And the cartoonist is like, oh, wow, that's great. And I might be getting the number wrong again. I'm not looking at the comics right now. Um, that's great. And then Olive kind of overhears both sides of this conversation. And she goes to Popeye and she's like, I think he thinks you offered him $1,500. And Popeye was like, why would I pay $1,500 for a picture? Um, (laughs) And so it gets awful because then Popeye forces this guy to like sign a contract for way under his rate by negging him. And (laughs) it's, you know, and, and he's like, you're a terrible artist. Nobody would pay more than whatever the amount is for your comics. And the cartoonist is like, okay, I guess I'll sign and he signs the he signs the contract, and as soon as he signs the contract, Popeye is like, "Yes, you're the greatest artist. We're going to make so much money off your work." And <laughs> I just read that, and I'm like, I know people that's literally happened to, um, you know, it, it, cartooning as an industry um, hasn't you know hasn't changed that much, and there's still a lot of people taking advantage of cartoonists. Um, So, yeah, it's just, it's a really, um, it's a really canny strip when we're talking about politics and when we're talking about current events and issues that affect ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. And like, what what drew me into reading that particular page that I began with was this art that was like, almost, almost, not almost abstract, like it was like mannerist, Mm -hmm. actually, would be more accurate. And I... And I thought I had a, a, a tight grasp on the aesthetics of it all, but um, apparently no. Uh, and so that was really eye-opening for me. And then something else that I enjoyed was 
there are these little columns, like letters to the editor almost columns at the bottom mm-hmm. of the some of the older strips called Kabible Cabaret, but it's by Hirschfeld. Is that part of this or is that its own thing? Um, so that was, uh, so there's this thing that goes on with some um, old Sunday comics where um, what they would do is they would have these things that they call toppers and toppers sometimes ran at the bottom, but they, because they were sending these comics out to different size newspapers, they would have an extra bit that you could run or not run depending on the size of your paper. Um, So in the beginning it was, it was the Hirschfeld piece. Um, Later it actually, they gave the whole page to Seagar and he started doing something called Sappo, which was, um, basically it was a comic that, um, did a lot of, um, satire of science and technology and engineering. Um, huh. but then Sappo would sometimes part of the Sappo piece would be something called Popeye's cartoon club. Um, and sometimes the whole Sappo piece would be Popeye's cartoon club and Popeye's Cartoon Club was this thing that Seagar did. He loved teaching other people to draw. And so he would either do a drawing lesson or sometimes he would actually publish the fan art that like children would send him. Um, right there, like on the paper, you know, on the newspaper page that was going like all over the country and the world, there'd be like, here's a cartoon by nine-year-old Jeff or whatever. I'm making oh up God. a name. So that's one of those things that I always thought was amazing. And and last year was Popeye's 90th birthday. So I um, got permission to uh, to sort of bring back Popeye's cartoon club for a year. Uh, and, but rather than, you know, I could have gone and got nine year olds to draw for me for free. Uh, but <laughs> I don't want to be like Popeye and abuse cartoonists. So Yay. what I did was I invited a whole bunch of different artists and some people who are comic strip artists, some comic book artists, uh, some illustrators, some fine artists, even, animators to um to do a Popeye's cartoon club strip so everybody got to basically do their own take on Popeye um and we ran strips by all different artists for every Sunday for a year where we basically just told them do whatever you want uh you know here's some guidelines you can't have bad language basically um you know, and, but you can do whatever you want with Popeye and the other characters from Thimble Theater. Um, and we got some like really amazing comics and those were all also all up on Comics Kingdom. Uh, and it was just such a, it was such a delight to just get to see all of these different people who grew up with Popeye or had different experiences of what their understanding of who Popeye was um get to reinterpret Popeye in their own style with their own sense of humor um and just you know take Popeye in all of these different directions yeah yeah I'm really looking forward to checking that out there's also a book by um Tom Neely oh yes Yeah. yeah Tom actually did a piece for um for Popeye's Cartoon Club yeah yeah and he did okay. he was on we had a panel uh for Popeye's 90th birthday uh at um San Diego Comic-Con last year Tom was on 
So oh, that's yeah, so cool. he did a really, really, he did a really yeah. funny Popeye's Cartoon Club comic. Um, it's basically Popeye goes to a museum and um, like just doesn't understand any of the art. And then this really snooty art critic uh, tells him that comics aren't art. So he punches the guy. Yes. It's really good. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I think Tom's an amazing draftsman. Like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah. And one of the topics that I've, I've heard you speak about uh, was about the way that Popeye relates to gender um, in, as, as a character within the, within the comic strip. Yeah. So Popeye's perception and conversations about gender are really interesting. And so this is one of those places where I try to be really careful to not, um, not project modern understandings of gender onto characters from the 1930s where we use very different language today. Um, but Popeye explicitly enjoys dressing as a woman. Um, he likes wearing women's clothing and he talks about it in the context of the strip. And one of the things that I find really refreshing about it is that a lot of the time when you see male characters who use male pronouns and are very masculine characters, when we think about them dressing as women, there's usually some kind of like trans misogynistic joke attached. Um, and with Popeye, there really isn't. There's always a joke, but the joke rarely has to do, it almost, it never has to do um, with the, oh, ha, ha, it's a man in a dress. Um, it's usually about the other male character's perceptions of Popeye in a dress. Um, there's this really wonderful comic strip that I talk about a lot that's probably probably one of the ones you're referencing, where um Popeye is trying to catch this criminal and somehow um, in the, through the events of trying to track this criminal down, he decides the best way to do this is to disguise himself as a woman. And so he disguises himself as a woman and he's telling people he's one of the Jones girls and he becomes a, he becomes a dancer in the town that he's living in. Um, so he's he's like a bar girl dancer. Um, and everybody's like very impressed with his dancer and this criminal um, with his dancing and this criminal decides that he wants to marry Popeye. And Popeye goes through with it and marries I marries this guy. And then after they're married, he's like, he's like, darling, I need to tell you something. And I'm worried that you're going to be angry. And, um, and the, the man's like, well, now that you're my wife, nothing you do could ever make me angry. And Popeye's like, okay, I need to tell you that I'm amphibious. And the, the criminal guy is just like, amphibious what does that mean and and Popeye's like it means that I dress like a man and a woman I'm Popeye the sailor man and I think it's actually I'm Popeye the sailor not I say the man part because that's the song I'm Popeye the sailor and it's this fantastic moment because he's just very frank you know I 
I, I, you know, I think now we would say I present as a man and, or a woman, but he's like, I dress as a man or a woman. And it's, it's just so nice to see that sort of thing and to go back to the 1930s and see that sort of thing in a comic. Um, there's also, I think everybody knows about Sweepy, who's Popeye's um, adopted child. Um, Sweepy arrived in a box one day and Popeye was so delighted that there was this baby in a box. And Popeye was like, oh my gosh, I always wanted a baby. And, and Popeye takes parenting really, really seriously. But it's pretty important to notice that most of the time when Popeye refers to himself as a parent, he calls himself a mother. And he talks about parenting Sweepy as a mother. Uh, and there's one comic strip where he's talking about being a mother to Sweepy to a woman who also has a baby. And the woman gets real weird at him. And he's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, he's like, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, sometimes I'm so concerned about being a mother that I forget that I'm the male sex. And it's just, again, this perception of gender that you know we rarely see today that's being illustrated in a comic that's being written in the 1930s and is being illustrated in the context of a character that I think we think of as a very masculine character there's uh you know Popeye is such a masculine role model that to go back and see this masculine role model talking about how he sometimes forgets he's a dude um, and that motherhood is really important to him and that he identifies as a mother is so cool. That really is. Um, and it was so cool getting to see those specific strips as well. And you were also speaking about um, Crazy Cat yeah. and some of those themes. It, it, Crazy Cat, is that that's King Features as well? Crazy or? Cat is also King Features. That's the comic mm-hmm. I was talking about before the George Harriman's comic that... Uh, yeah. That that William Randolph that Hearst, Hearst kept paying kept for. Um, yeah, Crazy yeah. Cat is fascinating. Um, George Harriman was a um, white passing mixed race man, and um, he was probably the first African American cartoonist syndicated at the level that he was, largely in part due to the fact that he was passing. Um, but before um, before he worked on Crazy Cat, he did try to do some comics that were more ex- explicitly um, about racial issues, and they didn't really go anywhere. Um, so Crazy Cat is about a cat and a mouse and a dog and all of their animal friends, but it really delves into um, issues of race. Uh, Crazy is a black cat. Um there's a lot in Crazy Cat about Crazy wishing that they were a white cat, um, sometimes pe- trying to pass as a white cat, um, and a lot of other ways that race comes into the strip uh, in fairly subtle ways that I feel like, you know, Harriman was able to get away with because racist readers might not have noticed them. Um But the other really cool thing about Crazy Cat is that um, George Harriman was very adamant that Crazy didn't have a gender. 
Um, crazy is referred to with both male and female pronouns over the course of the comic, sometimes in the same strip. So, you know, there'll be a he and then a she, uh, there'll be a, um, man and then a woman, um, you know, the, any, any gendered word can be used, can be applied to crazy cat. Um, and, and Herman spoke about this publicly, that it was very important to him that crazy did not have a gender. Um, crazy now, I think a lot of people think is cr of crazy as female because one of the things, so crazy is in love with Ignatz, who is a male mouse. And when they started making crazy cat cartoons in the fifties, they were like, well, we can't use male pronouns for crazy because then it'll look gay because we can't have a male cat in love with a male mouse. So they started using female pronouns for crazy um, but crazy was really envisioned by Harriman to be a character who truly had no gender. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting if he felt that way, maybe because of his experience sort of being outside of the boundaries of how people understood race at the time. Yeah. I think that there's a lot that overlaps, um, in terms of passing narratives. Um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of crazy cat strips that are about crazy, not really knowing how to fit in in different situations. Um, you know, there's a really great comic strip where crazy um, tries to go, and I forget what order it's in, but gets told to go to the ladies smoking room and then gets to the ladies smoking room and is told, no, you can't go in here. You have to go to the men's smoking room. And you know, and so, and I think there's a lot of that, um, a lot of those feelings of not belonging that aren't just, you know, that don't just apply to gender and certainly apply to race as well. I mean, I'm, I'm white. And so there's parts of that where I, I hesitate to overanalyze because right. I don't want to be projecting my experience onto someone else's experience. Um, but, you know, but definitely I think there's a lot of overlap to be seen. Well, thank you again for, for coming on the show. I, I love talking with you about comics, like just oh, thank so, you. so much. Yeah. Thank you for having yeah. me. I, you know, I'm absolutely delighted to talk about these things. I think there's, um, there's such a wealth of really valuable and important, uh, classic comic strips, you know, going back over a century now and, you know, if, you know, I think that there's so many cool things that people should know about and would probably love to read if they did know about them. Well, thank you for those reading tips. It's definitely going to give me a good starting point. And I'm also going to take a look at the X9 stuff too, because I'm a big Dashiell Hammett fan. Fantastic. Cool to see him in more and more than one medium. Yeah. Just like, yeah, poking through it, I, looking at them online just felt so different. So if, if you, like me folks, had a hard time sort of following the action strips in the paper when you were a kid, consider checking them out online when you can, I guess, uh, binge read, so to speak, mm -hmm. and um, make things big. This just gorgeous, gorgeous inks on everything as well. So T, where can our listeners find your work on the internet? So you can find me at Teaberry Blue. That's tea like the drink, berry like the uh, fruit, blue like the color. Everywhere except for Facebook, because I got <laughs> deleted on Facebook because I'm non-binary and don't use my legal name. Such bullshit. Yeah. Hopefully they'll um, fix it. Actually, I have a lead I'm following up with on that. But um, so... 
Thank you, T, for joining us again. Thank you, listeners. Graphic Policy Radio, uh, you know, we we rely on folks like our listeners to review us and share and promote the show. Uh, Whatever podcast platform you're listening to, I'm sure there's a place where you can leave a rating for us, and it would really make a difference in our ability to help keep the show alive and growing. Um, So do that. And, of course, folks can find me online on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. Also, uh, I am in the March Badness essay contest. I have written about David Lee Roth. And by the time you are listening to this, you will probably be able to vote on my essay. Um, so go to uh, marchbadness.com and or come to my Twitter and you will see, you will see, actually, sorry, the URL is marchxness like the letter X, marchxness.com, and you can vote and support my work. Uh, Anyway, as we like to say, I'm Popeye the Sailor, but not necessarily a man. No, as I'd like to say, uh, (laughs) keep it geeky.